Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. Good evening, afternoon, or morning to wherever you may be. I'd like to thank you for tuning in and welcome you to Ufodicy on Odyssey. On this show, we're going to discuss UFO news, events both new and historical, and other fields related to UFOs. My name is Thomas Wortman. I'm the state director for the Mutual UFO Network of Ohio, along with being an independent researcher. The numbers behind the coronavirus pandemic is really escalating. And I've been staying in my house as much as possible. The other day I did make the, um, as I call it, senior tour out to uh, Walmart to pick up some necessary supplies. But other than that, I'm pretty much staying inside the house. And and these numbers are basically really getting scary. And I I think we're not even close to seeing the peak. I think we're going to see the numbers going up. And hopefully everybody out there is going to be, you know, monitoring the social distancing. I, I've noticed a lot of people already in the stores when I'm out there that if I go out to the store and I start going down an aisle, I see people trying to maintain as much distance as possible from each other going down the aisleway. Last night I was watching a news report and I believe they said that Walmart is going to almost start or they will be starting one lane shopping where you're going to have to go basically around in one lane. That way people are not passing each other and potentially coughing in each other's face. Another thing I saw yesterday was um, the recommendation for mask. I've been wearing a mask when I go out shopping. And you noticed that in the images coming from Asia, a lot of people have been wearing masks all along anytime they have an outbreak of some sort of a virus. Their numbers over there are significantly lower than what ours are. And now they're starting to recommend that individuals here wear the surgical mask when they go out and do their shopping or other such things. Like, And right now it's really difficult not to want to go outside because even though it's cold out today, we do have a beautiful sunny day here where I'm at in Ohio. I'd like to take the dogs out to walk them, at least get around the neighborhood, but on the other hand, I'm in that age group, which I, I've one that's really got to watch it. And you never know who you could potentially be around and who may have that virus. That's one of the reasons that they're recommending the mask, because it's not just from getting the virus from somebody else, but a number of individuals may not realize that they have the virus. And when they go out, they may be passing a virus on to somebody else. So the mask will help prevent that virus going from them to other people. Something I started doing the other day was printing out some uh, 3D printed mask. I found 
a file on a website that was put out by a doctor. Called, uh, it was on Billings Institute. There is a link there that a doctor from Billings Institute, along with a dentist, got together and designed out a 3D printed mask that would accept basically pieces of material from surgical masks that you could put inside as a filter. Because these supplies run such short um, availability that they, they may run out of complete mask, but what they were able to do is take one surgical mask and cut it down to make six filters for this 3D printed mask. So as an experiment, I tried printing out some, and I printed out five of them, and they actually fit very well. And I was able to put the filter in of no problem. It was well designed out. But one of the things I ran into was looking for elastic. Now, something you take for granted, and there's so many things that we take for granted anymore of being available, was trying to find some quarter-inch wide elastic just to use to hold the mask to my face. And Walmart was completely out. A number of the other stores which I could get it at were, were closed because they're considered non-essential. So I'm going to keep looking around. And my sister, I love my sister, but she sends me a text message that says, oh, I hear you're looking for some elastic quarter inch. I found some and I'm willing to sell it to you for $50 a yard. Now, she did that as a joke, but there are people out there doing things like that just to kind of like price gouge to make some money. And it's unfortunate that there are people in real life to come out and do that. But we also see at times the good of people coming out. And I like hearing the good stories when they come out on the news because we see so much bad every day. I kind of see some of the news programs as like putting out uh, the daily bad news because they see bad news as selling and if bad news draws people in, they're going to keep promoting it. Well, on some of the good things that we see out there, or we don't see as much as maybe what we should, you've got a number of companies that basically are furloughing people, letting people go because they're not allowed to you know, have people gathering in numbers above, let's say, 10, 20, or whatever it is per their state. Well, Virgin Orbit is one of those companies. One of the big things that's a shortage of right now is ventilators. Ventilators are necessary for these people who are in serious condition with the coronavirus. Right now, uh, a number of the states, including mine, are crying out that they need ventilators. And one of the problems that they're running into is basically competing against each other. You've got one state trying to get them, they call up, they go to order a ventilator, they find out FEMA. FEMA has taken a priority, so they've got to go out and try to find somebody else. Then if they do find it, you may have this company, I don't want to say price gouging, but letting people bid against each other to get these supplies. So you've got other individuals out there who are you know, trying to find ways around it. You've got individuals who are designing pieces to maybe run two people off of one ventilator. Now, I don't know if that means that if they're in super serious condition, you can run two people, but 
maybe if people have more mild conditions, they can run two people off of one ventilator. You've also got an organization like Virgin Orbit stepping up. They're looking at basically taking parts of a ventilator system, a bridge ventilator, from one of their designed ships that they've got and adapting that to public use. Now, these are not the same level as something's designed for medical purposes, but you're looking at keeping somebody alive. They're taking one of these bridge ventilators, as they're being called, and they're seeing if they can be used to assist you know, the lower end patients to free up the more advanced systems for people in much more serious condition. And they're hoping that they can get this thing approved like by early April with the FDA and their facility out in Long Beach, they can start making them ASAP. The company stated on a normal day, they're building rockets and other equipment for space launches We're not medical doctors, nor are they usually manufacturers of medical devices. But we do have a team of incredibly innovative and agile thinkers. So they're looking at why not put their minds to use and see if they can design something out to help people on this emergency type basis. And when you're seeing these prospective numbers coming out, like 100,000 potential deaths in the United States, I mean, Italy has just been hit. Spain has been hit. Other countries have been hit, you know, with high numbers of deaths. So why not look at these devices and see if they can find some way to help individuals out? NASA also is doing a similar thing. At a town hall meeting, they're saying they're looking at ways to explore helping out the public. And one of their things they're looking at, too, is... Can they also make ventilators? They're going to NASA. You also have people with innovative ideas. Right now, things like the James Webb Telescope, they just announced it is going to be basically all the work on it's being put on pause because of the coronavirus. They suspended all operations. I think it was as of like uh, March 20th. The one thing they did do is test out the mirror. And by the way, can't wait till they get the James Webb telescope online because that thing may be a tremendous tool at identifying exoplanets. And we may be able to find something out there in that uh, Goldilocks zone that we've always been looking for or other worlds which have potential signs of life. But while these operations are kind of like in the interim, you know, why not explore ways to see if they can develop tools to help us get through this pandemic? So once I get into program day, I'm going to start watching the news again because we're expected to peak here in my region maybe in like two or three weeks. Hopefully, hopefully they'll start putting this virus in check. And there's some other organizations locally that's also trying to work on vaccines for the coronavirus. So we'll just have to wait and see. On another note, not to mention disasters, but there's been, again, more local news about potential collisions of asteroids 
with the earth. Something that has been in the process of, of being developed is an engine that they, they could potentially send to an asteroid to try to change its path. One I found, um, there is an asteroid called Didymos. I think I pronounced that right, D-I-D-Y-M-O-S, which is a 2,650-foot-wide asteroid. And there is a 535-foot-wide satellite named Diddy Moon that goes along with that. These two celestial bodies are not making a potentially dangerous rendezvous for Earth, but they do provide the opportunity for basically a dress rehearsal. So NASA, along with the European Space Agency, is going to be heading to Diddy Moss and Diddy Moon. These objects are about 6.8 million miles from Earth. There is also an Italian space agency CubeSat going along to take pictures, but they want to see if they can really knock Diddy Moon off of trajectory. To get there, though, they're developing a new rocket. And the rocket engine was designed basically here at NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio, and also by Aerojet Rocketdyne of Washington. This is a ion drive. And they're hoping this system of ion drive will set a precedent for future electric propulsion and for these ambitious space missions. So maybe someday we'll see a rocket that's able to be launched to one of these asteroids. I just kind of picture like strapped on or basically put against the surface of the asteroid. And you're able to fire this rocket and change the directions. That way maybe we can prevent, you know, some future disaster with the planet. Something else that's... I've noticed out there recently is the number of UFO reports has declined because so many more people are now inside. They're not outside. They're not seeing anything, things unusual in the sky. We normally see an increase about this time of year, but I'm not seeing that right now. And later today, I've got to look at a more worldwide basis of UFO reports. And I think we'll probably see the same thing pretty much across the board. People are staying inside. They're not going out, let's say, for like evening dog walks as much. They may not be out doing other events outside in the evening, even though now the weather is starting to permit it. And just for curiosity, uh, I want to follow it the next few months. Hopefully the pandemic won't last as long as they're potentially projecting. But... I want to watch the numbers during the pandemic and see if it, you know, we see a decline overall. Something I have seen reports on, though, on the other hand, it's going up, is basically people binge-watching television shows. I, I do that, certainly. There's nights I sit down, I watch certain shows all evening long. And I'm one of those people that I like to binge-watch. 
If I find a series I like, I'll go back and, let's say, watch it from the beginning. And I don't want to sound like Big Bang Theory, because I remember one night on Big Bang Theory, they were joking around about, okay, we're going to go back and watch, let's say, Star Trek from the first episode. We're going to go back and watch this series from the first episode. But we're going to take this season out because this one really didn't count. And, and I find myself doing that some. One of the things I've got laid out to do on my binge-watching exercise is to go back and watch certain UFO shows. And I do have some on DVD. And I'll go back and watch them from the beginning, and I'll probably be doing a much more, you know, basically a closer analysis on what I see going on in the shows because I tend to look at them one from entertainment side. And a lot of these shows are designed for entertainment. They want to inform the viewer, but not to the level that maybe somebody who does investigations is really looking at. Let's inform the public about certain events that's going on. Let's discuss these events. Let's give them the details of the events. But maybe not go a tremendous amount in depth. Something else that happens in a number of these shows is they're also um, being controlled by the producers. The producers will tell the individuals basically what to say, how to present certain things, because they're also looking for ratings. Ratings bring in advertising. Advertising with higher ratings keeps them on TV for another season. So one of the other things I do when I do my analysis, I go back and look at this, the shows, and if I do find certain faults, um, I wonder why. Because it's, it's one thing to see the fault. It's another thing to kind of like analyze and determine why this fault was in that episode. Was it something potentially um, written in by either the individuals performing the show or those producing the show that maybe one thing is controlled in a certain light. One of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about later after break is potentially how, you know, these producers or ones behind the show may be controlling what's going out there and why they may be controlling it. But there's a number of factors that may be controlling why these shows appear the way they do. There's been some shows that I thought were very entertaining. Uh, one of the earlier shows, I guess you could say, and I don't mean really early, early shows, but one of the shows was out there that became more well-known was UFO Hunters. Uh, that one featured Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns, who had UFO Magazine. UFO Hunters lasted uh, for three seasons. And what the show did is they took Bill Burns along with a couple other individuals. One um, normally happened to be an engineer because they wanted somebody to look at these cases from an engineering point of view. Another one, they may have had somebody like uh, a biologist or so forth go along or other researchers go along just to look at this case from multiple perspectives. The thing I liked about the show is they went out and they, they found all these different subjects 
They just didn't focus on, let's say, Roswell, and they did do a thing on Roswell. But they looked at abductions. They looked at crash retrievals, uh, the military perspective of UFOs, cops and UFOs, alien contact, dogfights. I mean, they looked at a lot of different things, including a number of other different UFO cases like uh, the Phoenix Lights, uh, Aurora, uh, a number of interesting subjects, and they did inform the public of these different events. I want to go back and review the series and look at it from my point of view to see how accurate the information was being presented and then try to guess why it was being presented in the light it was. So I've got 39 hours of binge-watching ahead of me. One of the last episodes, um, I remember some, was they called it Area 52. And Area 52 wasn't really like um, outside Las Vegas. Uh, It wasn't out by like the little alien. It was actually referring to Dugway Proving Grounds, which is over in Utah. And Dugway Proving Grounds is a very unique area. Dugway uh, is an area where they did like um, weapons testing, I believe, chemical weapons, maybe even testing. Yeah, chemical weapons testing. Because there's some been events around Dugway. Basically, really scary. I mean, there is an incident where, oh, I forget what year it was now, there was like a helicopter flying that had a chemical agent on board that they were basically spraying and testing. This chemical should have been like completely discharged from these chambers at a certain point, and the helicopter is like heading back to the base, but yet the chemical wasn't completely drained. And the chemical came out in regions where it wasn't supposed to. And again, I'm going off the top of my head, but there's roughly like a, a thousand or so sheep that were killed by this chemical agent. Now, now this is scary. So they were testing out chemical weapons in the area. Matter of fact, now that I remember more clearly, they also had, um, there's been videos out there where they showed kind of like how the base is set up a little bit uh, for training purposes, how they train people in chemical weapons and so forth. And when I think of, you know, Area 51, I think it's, it's remote. You've got like 26 miles before you really get to the base. What better way to keep something secret? On the other hand, if you've got testing of chemical weapons, wouldn't that also be a great way to keep people away from a region where maybe you're doing UFO research, UFO reverse engineering? Because how many people may want to be exposed potentially to chemical weapons or get into an area where there is testing of chemical weapons? And personally, I'd stay away. And I remember on the episode, one of the episodes involving that, they showed some of the individuals from UFO hunters getting close to the base, and they reportedly were not past the boundary lines that would technically put them on the base, but they had military personnel come out and basically tell them they had to leave. And they wanted to confiscate all the video that was taken from the region. Now, again, these are some of the details that were presented on television. I don't know how they were edited, you know, what was 
maybe left out, what was, they did show uh, the encounter on their series. And if I remember correctly, Bill Burns said that, you know, this is one of the reasons that basically the plug on UFO hunters was pulled because that they basically crossed a line at what they were presenting at Dugway. Dugway also has an area out there which it's basically like its own little city. Basically fine. I mean, and one time there was an incident out there where they shut down the whole area. That individuals were not allowed in, allowed out. Because like, like I'm describing, they have their own city right there where all the workers basically stay. And think about that when you have an incident that basically shuts down the whole area. It's like in quarantine. That, that That's scary. But again, what better place to potentially be doing UFO research? One of the things I want to look at after the break, though, is pulling up some other incidents involving military encounters with UFOs and other times that this subject has been um, attempted to be reported and potentially silenced. And this isn't going back to 2004. This is going way before that. This is Thomas Wordman on Ephodicy on Odyssey. You're listening to Odyssey. Welcome back to the second half of Odyssey. This is your host, Thomas Wortman. Um, yeah, I'm getting ready for my binge watching this afternoon. I was just thinking, I'm going to watch UFO Hunters, but there's another series that, um, let's just say, was on the other end of the spectrum um, called Chasing UFOs. One of the things that they did in the show was um, they took, again, multiple people out. They reviewed various incidents, and they went to try to explain these incidents. One of the individuals involved with the show, his name is James Fox, and James Fox put out two, to me, outstanding documentaries. One is called I Know What I Saw. The other one is called Out of the Blue. And I found both those available, by the way, on the Internet uh, to watch. He also has another one coming out, and it's going to be in a movie form that's going to be released to theaters, and I'm not sure if it's going to be at all theaters or limited theaters. It was projected to come out this fall, and again, that may be changing due to the virus situation and the theaters kind of like postponing various movies for a better time. But this movie's called Phenomena, and it has a number of UFO events. I talked to James about it several years ago, and he's been working on this project for a number of years. James, I admire. When he did his earlier documentaries, he basically uh, mortgaged his house to raise money to get this thing produced. And that's why it's taken so long to do like this documentary is just, you know, getting the funds because you have to find people that want to put up the resources. When you want to go to like Zimbabwe to 
talked to a number of students who are now grown up and adults who witnessed UFOs years ago. And not only just UFOs, but aliens. That's going to be costly. Besides all the equipment and everything else necessary to do this movie. So I admire James for, you know, his efforts. But unfortunately, a show called Chasing UFOs was, let's say it, it wasn't something I'd prefer to watch on a, a weekly basis. Um, it kind of reminded me of, um, let's say, let's just say, let's go out and investigate UFOs, but let's maybe go over the top on ways to try to make it entertaining to bring people in. One of the things that really got me, the one episode, was when they were out at night and they had on uh, backpacks with cameras running around at night looking for something. It kind of reminded me of chasing UFOs meets finding Bigfoot. It's kind of like you know, putting those two shows together. It wasn't one of my favorite series, <laughs> but enough about that. I'm kind of like a history buff, and I like to go back, and when I hear about certain things, I like to go back and dig deeper. When the episode of Project Blue Book was on last week, and they went back and talked about Operation Main Brace. Basically, it's what this, the show was involved around. Operation Main Brace goes back to the 1950s in a NATO fleet encountering a UFO. Well, we've heard about the Nimitz case going back to 2004-2005. We've also heard about the Teddy Roosevelt going back to like 2014-2015. I also had an individual coming up to me privately talking about when he was in the Navy during Desert Storm back, which goes back to 1990-1991, in each of these events uh, with the Nimitz, the Teddy Roosevelt, and the individual that I met personally, all of them described UFOs around a naval task force. The individual who came up to me privately said that he was uh, on flight deck of a carrier, and he wouldn't give me his name because he, he didn't want to be identified, but... He described being on the deck and seeing UFOs from the deck of the carrier back during Desert Storm. Per his comments, they would scramble fighters up to try to intercept these objects, whatever they were. When they went up to intercept the objects, these objects basically would play games with them. They could outperform them in a manner that sounded very much like the... Nimitz encounter that when Fravor went up to intercept the object, basically tried to you know cut off the object by flying across a circle and outperform him and outmaneuver him at incredibly high speed. The individual I talked to was on board this carrier during Desert Storm basically described the same thing. And he told me all about this event way before this Nimitz story ever came out. So it's almost like you've got witnesses in different rooms describing these events without being able to compare their stories. 
And to me, that makes it more credible. According to the individual on board the carrier, he said that the pilots who went up became so frustrated about trying to catch the objects and being outperformed that they refused to try to intercept them because they knew it wasn't going to do any good. And again, this goes back to the 1990s. But, you know, something I wonder about is wouldn't kind of like the scuttlebutt be around, let's say, 10, 13 years later that this incident happened before with a carrier in Desert Storm and when the Nimitz encounters came up in 20, um, two, or 2004, 2005 timeframe right in that area, that wouldn't that scuttlebutt still be around that this happened before and it's happening again? Well, when I go back in history, uh, these weren't the first times that something like this had been reported. I remembered seeing a video of a gentleman uh, called Donald Kehoe, and Donald Kehoe was a major, a major in the Marine Corps. Kind of give you a real brief background of Donald Kehoe is, he goes back to graduating from the Naval Academy in 1919. So they're basically flying biplanes around that same time frame. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Uh, he was injured in 1922 in Guam. And during his, uh, basically his recovery, long recovery, he started writing pulp fictions. So he's writing these fictional novels as a hobby. He became friends with Charles Lindbergh. I mean, think about meeting Lindbergh. And he returned to active duty during World War II because they needed the people. So he went back in and eventually retired with the rank of major. Well, during his writings, Donald Kehoe got interested in the story of UFOs. And he wrote a book called Uf, or UFOs, Flying Saucers Are Real. And I've, I've got some copies here at the house. Because he was interested in like Kenneth Arnold's story and some of the other stories that were coming out on UFOs. And he became much more interested in the subject because he was hearing these stories about these things moving at fantastic speeds. Their technology, whatever these things were, appeared to be well beyond anything we had. And think about this. He came up from biplanes in World War I, basically, uh, went through World War II. So he's familiar with the aircraft we had back then. And he's hearing these stories about these tremendous objects. And the more he researches the subject, he becomes comes under the belief that, you know, hey, there's some technologies out there way beyond us. And they basically appeared to be under intelligent control. And it appeared that, you know, the government was trying to suppress the truth about the whole subject. Before his book came out, he actually wrote an article called Flying Saucers Real. And then when the article went to paperback, it sold over half a million copies. Now think about this. When he turns this article from uh, an article into a book, half million copies, and this is like the 1950s, half million copies is a lot of books. So it shows people were hungry to read about this subject. The argument that he made was that 
flying saucers were extraterrestrial. The Air Force knew about it, and they downplayed it to keep the public from going into a panic. In Kehoe's view, he didn't believe that you know the aliens were hostile in any manner, but they were basically surveying the Earth. And they'd been doing it for over a couple hundred years, and their observations all of a sudden increased in 1947, and this was a couple years after the A-bomb. So in his mind, you know, this is why the number of sightings increased. We're also at that time advancing with our nuclear weapons. Kehoe's book may have been you know, a little bit sensational uh, in its manner of presenting things, but it was basically accurate, you know. He wrote some more books. Uh, he put out Flying Saucers from Outer Space. This goes back again to the early 1950s. Kehoe has seen both, I guess you could say both good and bad, from different perspectives. He had those who argued with what he presented, said he was sensationalizing things. You had other ones who you know, said, hey, the guy's releasing great information. And when he looked at the fact that he was a major, to a lot of individuals that gave more credibility. He was then brought into NICAP. NICAP is the National Investigations Committee for Aerial Phenomena, and this goes back to 1956. And he was one of the earlier prominent professionals that had, you know, a high degree of legitimacy behind what he was investigating. NICAP went out and did investigations. He put out newsletters. I've got some of the earlier newspapers in my archives going back in the 1950s. Kehoe became director of the organization. And this goes back from 1950s to 1960s. And he was really pressing for congressional hearings into the subject. At one time, NICAP's membership hit about 15,000 15, people back in the 1960s. And you had really more limited interest from the government officials, except maybe behind closed doors. Behind closed doors, they may have been reading the publications. He was also pushing for, um, because of the increased scrutiny of U the subject UFOs, he was pushing for independent scientific investigations. And this is when the Condon Report, or Condon Committee basically was formed, and they did their fiasco. Kehoe's books, by the way, some of them can be found on public domain. I don't know if you've ever done it, but I've, I've done a, a Google search for public domain videos, books, etc., and the nice thing is you can go in, you can look at these things for free. Because as the old saying goes, free sometimes is good, or free is actually good. Kehoe made a couple television appearances. And a couple of them kind of stood out in my memory. That's why I'm bringing them up today. They go back to the 1950s. And one of them happened to be in January of 1958. Another one goes back to March of 1958. The interviewer 
was Mike Wallace, who was on CBS for years. The video, for, if you're going to look for it, uh, one I found that has Keogh talking with Mike Wallace um, on ABC, I guess it was, about flying saucers goes back to March 8th of 1956. And there's a three-part segment. In the three-part segment, the third part, he brings up that he's got information that would basically prove to the American public that UFOs exist. One of the things, again, looking at the pros and cons, is he talks about these reports he has, several reports, I think it's three to four reports, from individuals, and he doesn't want to give their names. And he doesn't want to give their names because he said, uh, in this case, one is very well known, he's a scientist, and it could basically uh, hurt his career, he'd get ridiculed. And Mike Wallace is kind of like, really, ridicule somebody? I want to look at Mike Wallace and say, yeah, ridicule somebody of talking about UFOs. Because picture this, this is 1958 when this story is coming out. And people who saw UFOs a lot of times were looked at being crazy. I mean, a number of them are still today. Uh, people look at people like that today and, and still, you know, question individuals. But nonetheless, this is 1958. When I listen to the stories, though, uh, one of the stories he talks about is just very briefly that there was a report that came in from somebody on board a carrier in 1951. The fleet was off the coast of Korea. Reportedly, um, a UFO was picked up on radar. Uh, these objects were traveling at, or this object was traveling at a high rate of speed. The response by the Navy was to launch aircraft in an attempt to intercept the object. The object, by the way, wasn't just picked up on one radar system. It was reportedly picked up on 14 different radar systems. So it's not like you have one system potentially malfunctioning and giving maybe a ghost image or whatever you want to call it. Because otherwise you'd have 14 of these radar systems malfunctioning the same way. So aircraft were scrambled. This thing was in the vicinity for roughly about a half an hour and disappeared at an extreme high rate of speed. There were no details given from the pilot's side. Let's say the pilot may have intercepted the object, what the encounter was like. And I was just really curious, you know, if you could find that story. And if that story was similar to the Nimitz case, back in 2004, 2005? Or was it similar to uh, the Teddy Roosevelt back in 2014, 2015? Were these similar occurrences? But basically, per Kehoe, the object is in the area for roughly about a half hour and disappeared at a high rate of speed of over 1,000 miles an hour. The thing that caught my attention is this story sounded somewhat like the Nimitz encounters and the Teddy Roosevelt encounters. It sounded similar in nature, and this goes back to 1950s, 1951 to be exact. Uh, the individual who told me his story his, was a personal account. Again, 
he wasn't anywhere different, unlike the individual that uh, Kehoe reportedly talked to. He didn't want to give his name either. Uh, and I can understand that. Now, can I say that he was definitely in the military? Well, he didn't produce the papers, but everything that he told me indicated that he was in the military or had an extremely good knowledge of the military, put it that way. Watching the videos, again, Mike Wallace seems to be pretty much opinionated that, you know, the UFOs basically don't exist and he's being the one who wants to go out and debunk things and really, you know, kind of like take the story apart if possible. At least that's my my perspective. Kehoe, on the other hand, uh, he's making his claims and he's saying that, you know, we have information, we have data, but he's not presenting things. But I can also understand the fact that witnesses want to remain confidential. So it's kind of like a catch-22, you know. Even though it was a brief description, uh, it did sound similar to the naval encounters much, many years later. I'd l- really like to see the original report and go back and see, you know, the, the names of some of these individuals, see the ships they're on, and see if there's other correlating information from other ships in the region. I was trying to find another video, or at least the interview audio of it, going back to January of 1952 with uh, Major Kehoe. This was one where, reportedly, the plug was pulled on the broadcast. Per Kehoe, the interview was set up. He was going to be discussing UFO-related events. And the thing was reportedly scripted out. So basically, he listed his talking points, the things that he was going to discuss on the show. They were reviewed, and they were approved. Who also looked at them reportedly was the military. In this case, it would have been the Air, uh, Air Force Marines. Let's just say the military. They reviewed the information and basically knew the content of what he was going to talk about. Reportedly, what happened is when the show started going on, Kehoe started drifting away from the topics in his papers. At a point, he drifted, I guess you could say, far enough away from the content of the papers. The audio was cut. Okay, just went back and looked at my notes, and it was the Air Force. Uh, and it was with CBS. Uh, they basically had a prearranged deal with the Air Force. So the way it sounded is once he drifted so far from the script, somebody in the control booth basically was told to pull the plug and cut his mic. And that was in January of 1958. So, you know, if the story is accurate, uh, this goes back into censorship, that they didn't want him talking about certain areas related to UFOs unless they were basically approved by the Air Force at that time. So when I see Mike Wallace questioning two months later in March of 1958, well, why would, you know, um, these individuals be afraid to let their names know known? Well, think about this. If that story is accurate in January, that they basically pulled the plug on the Kehoe's talk, 
well, if they're pulling the plug on Kehoe's talk, what would they do to witnesses if their names came out? Would they ridicule them? Who knows what would happen? Per Kehoe's comments, though, it was apparent that, you know, in 1951 they had an encounter. 1952 you had Project, or Operation Mainbrace, which is one that was kind of featured in the Project Blue Book TV series. And it wasn't, by the way, just personnel on board the Franklin Roosevelt, which was a um, aircraft carrier that observed the object. Now, reportedly, the photograph was not made available, or one of six photographs were not made available for the public, but I did find a site which had a photograph of a silvery disc from a ship. Again, I can't ver- verify 100% that it was from that incident, but it was stated to be. And it was, they said it was possibly a, like a, a weather balloon, and there was not enough information to prove or disprove that point. But what I found interesting was some correlating stories from around the same time frame. At um, a field in Denmark, three Danish Air Force officers uh, sighted a UFO about 7.30 p.m. Now, they said the object was a shiny disc, metallic in appearance, and it passed overhead of the fleet and disappeared in the clouds to the east. Now, it was on September 20th, again of 52, right around that same time frame. You also had six British pilots flying in a formation of RAF jets uh, above the North Sea when they said that they had also spotted a silvery sphere approaching the direction of the fleet. They said the UFO eluded their pursuit and disappeared. When they returned to base, one of the pilots looked back and saw the UFO following him. When he turned to chase it, he said that the object sped away at high speed. And some of the other stories I found relating this event, again, it doesn't contain actual statements from the pilots of any of these events, but there were statements in regards to the objects being this shaped and also appearing to rise from the sea. They also traveled at extremely high rates of speed. Again, this sounds, I don't want to say 100% like, but it, it sounds similar going back to the Nimitz case because in the Nimitz case, David Fravor said that the object appeared to be rising from the surface of the water. He'd seen a disturbance on the water just before that. So these ones going back to 1952 were these similar type objects or let's say the same type of an object something rising from the sea these planes try to basically intercept the object moving at high rates of speed and outmaneuvers them these objects at the time were also caught on radar so as I'm looking over these stories you have stories which I don't I guess you could say maybe fragmented You've got bits and pieces here. You've got a brief, almost like a one-paragraph description of this event. 
another one paragraph of this one. Then you go back and you try putting these correlating stories all together. And you have to make sure that you don't start, you know, taking bits of pieces from one, putting into another one to try to fill in the blanks. You have to kind of keep all these stories separate. But nonetheless, when you look at that, if these stories are accurate, you've got what appears to be similar type of events going back to 1951 and going up to, let's say, current day. And you wonder, in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, how many other events occurred that maybe either weren't documented? Because according to one of the stories I came across from 1962, in 1962, reportedly, uh, another individual, his name was Harry Jordan or something like that, Harry Jordan, he was a radar operator. He said that he was off the coast of Sardinia when he observed an object traveling at 4,000 miles an hour. He said the object would appear, disappear. It would appear to hover. And he wanted to put the incident in the logbook. And the captain told him to leave the incident out of the logbook. Well, how many events like that occurred over the years? And by the way, he was on the FDR the Franklin Roosevelt in 1962. But it makes you wonder how many cases were documented and basically erased from the books. I know I've got to dig a lot more into my paper archives because not everything in those archives you'll find on the Internet because some of this stuff comes from old newsletters going back in the 1950s. And I've, I've got to dig through those to see if I can find some more correlating information. So I'm going to go on uh, TV and watch some of the news networks here in a few minutes. Then go head out to my garage and pull out some old UFO archives to look over. That way I can start building some stuff to talk about for next week. Normally I also do speaking engagements uh, this time of year, but those are all canceled due to the coronavirus. If anyone wants to reach me, they can reach me through MoveOnOhio.com. This is Thomas Wortman on Euphodicy on Odyssey. See you next week. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.